And our children come up for our special time of Children's Church. If you're a child and you're here, you should be up here. Come on up here. All right. All right, here comes Ava. Come on, girls. It's so good to see you guys today. Are you having a nice time of worship? Isn't God good? When we sing, how great is our God, it reminds us how great he really is. Did you know that God created the world and everything in it? Yes. Did you know that God created you? Did you know that God knew you before you were even born? You were still in your mother's womb, and God formed you and created you, and you're valuable to him. You know he loves you? You know, some of, uh, uh, some of the religious leaders in Jesus' day came to him, and they said, Jesus... We want you to settle this long debate that we often talk about here in our important places, and we want you to tell us what you think. And they said, what do you think the greatest commandment is from God? And so Jesus looked at them. He said, the first and greatest commandment is to love God. How do we love God? What do you guys think? How do we love God? Yeah? What? By praying to him, by worshiping him, by maybe singing songs to him, like we just did. What about by obeying? By praising him, yeah. And also maybe by obeying his word. So what he tells us he wants us to do in the Bible, that's what we do, right? And then Jesus said after that, he said the second commandment is this. To love your neighbor. Now, it's a little easier to love God than to love other people, isn't it? Is it sometimes hard to love other people? Well, I brought some ways for us, a thought of some ways for us to love other people. Can we talk about it for a minute? Okay, first one. Some people don't have enough clothes, so we could donate our clothes to people, right? Could you do that? Even you guys could do that, right? Some people in this world are thirsty, and we could make sure that they have water. You know, there's people around the world that have to travel miles to get to water. You guys have to travel about 40 feet to the nearest drinking fountain, and you get nice, clean, healthy water. Other people have to travel miles. So we can work to make sure that people have water. What about this? This is one of my favorite ones for kids because you guys love to do this so much. What's that say? Anybody like to get a hug in here? That looks, you guys know how to give hugs. All right. When you guys go sit down, you should give your mommy and daddy a hug. They probably love that. All right, what about this one? Can everybody do this? Yes. Even your parents can do this, right? Let's see if they can do it. Can you guys do that? They can. Everybody out there smiling right now. That's a way to love your neighbor is to give them a smile. What about this? There are widows in our church and in, in this world who um, don't have enough resources. Widows are folks that don't have a husband. And so we can take care of widows, especially in our church. There are ladies in our church that have the husbands who have died that we can support and take care of. You guys could even do that, right? Okay. Are you guys tracking with me? All right. You know, there's people in the world that don't have parents. They're called orphans. You know, the Bible says especially that we're supposed to take care of orphans. We can love our neighbor by taking care of orphans. One of the ways we do that is through those shoeboxes because those go to orphans especially during Christmas time. An orphan is someone who doesn't have a mommy or a daddy. That's what an orphan is. What about this one? Feed the hungry. How do you guys feel when you get hungry? You don't feel very good, do you? 
And we can have about as much food as we want, just about everyone in this room. There's people around the world that don't have enough food. That they're not going to get food today. They won't get any food today. So we can love our neighbor by making sure that they have food to eat. Okay? And then, let's see. I got one more down there. What about this one? Can you guys do this? Can you give it a try? What about your parents? Can you guys do high fives out there? Let's see. No, Chris, can you? Thank you for making an effort. All right. And I got a smile at the same time from Chris. Looking good. You guys, you did high fives and you smiled at the same time. We didn't even ask for that. But do you know what the single most important, sorry buddy, do you know what the single most important thing that you can do to love your neighbor, do you know what it is? Do you want to know? All right, I'm going to tell you. Are you sure you want to know? And that's what we're going to talk about today in today's message. Tell them about Jesus. That's the most important thing you'll ever do for your neighbor, to show them the love of God, is to tell them about Jesus. Do you know how you can do that right away, right now, like when you walk out of this place? The next person you see, you just tell them this. Jesus loves you. Can you say that? Do you think that your parents can say it? Let's look at them. Can you guys say that? They can say it. Now, Jesus wants us to tell people that he loves them because he died for them. And that's what I'm going to talk about today in my message. All right? Today's word of the day is Jesus. Okay? It's Jesus. All right. Go back and sit down. See how many times I say that. All right? Jesus. Oh, okay. Thank you, Sophie. Thank you so much. I, I did say that. Sophie's very literal. Okay. So. The rest of you, I want to invite you to take out a copy of God's Word with me today and open it up to the book of Acts, chapter 16. Acts, chapter 16. Or, chapter 13, sorry. Acts, chapter 13. Acts, chapter 13. Let me give you a little introduction of where we are in the text today. Paul, Barnabas, John Mark were in the city of Antioch at the first church that we know of as described in the book of Acts, the church of Antioch, where both Jews and Gentiles were brought the gospel, where they unified to form a church. Uh, In the church of Antioch, the Holy Spirit came upon the people there and told them, I want you to set apart Saul, later to be known as Paul, a man named Barnabas, his nickname was Son of Encouragement, as well as John Mark, and I want you to send them out as missionaries. And so they did. And so they left that place. They went to an island that you probably heard of before named Cyprus. While on the island of Cyprus, they go about sharing the gospel. And very soon, as the people start to receive the gospel, they come across the the magistrate, the, the man who's in charge of that island for the Roman authorities, named Sergius Paulus. As they share the gospel with Sergius Paulus, this uh, sorcerer who obviously follows Satan and doesn't want everyone to hear the gospel, he starts to intervene and disrupt the gospel message. Paul stands up in front of him, tells him he's basically a worker of Satan. God, through the Holy Spirit, uh, strikes this man, uh, the sorcerer, with blindness. Um, Sergius Paulus sees that miraculous work and very soon after believes in Jesus. So Paul, Barnabas, John, Mark go across the island of Cyprus. They're sharing the gospel. People are believing, and this amazing grand movement of God has begun. Shortly after that, Paul, Barnabas, John, Mark set sail to head a little bit north on the Mediterranean Sea, and soon uh, John, Mark departs to go back to Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas find themselves in another city named uh, another city named Antioch. 
This is a different Antioch. It's Pisidian Antioch. They go into the town, as they often do, and they begin to share the gospel. And as they begin to share the gospel on the first Sabbath, the people there are excited about this man, Jesus, and and about how how he could have possibly come, how he could be the long-awaited Messiah. The city of Pisidian Antioch is both full of Jews and also full of Gentiles. So a Gentile is basically anyone that's not a Jew. So it's full of people. It was a bustling city. It would have been sort of an international center. And so you have Romans there, Greeks. You would have Jews there. People from all around uh, the Middle East. And they're gathered there. They hear the men speak about this man, Jesus of Nazareth, and how he is, in fact, the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. The people are excited about that. And so they ask Paul and Barnabas, to come back to synagogue, to the church, the next Sabbath to share again. And so that's kind of where we're at right now in the book of Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 44. The first thing that we're going to learn from their testimony about Jesus is this. Not everyone will receive the gospel. Not everyone will receive Jesus. And so I'm going to talk about that just for a minute. Look at verse 44. It says, the following Sabbath, almost the whole town assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what Paul was saying, insulting him. So Paul and Barnabas preach this revolutionary message about the man Jesus from Nazareth and announce that he is in fact the long-awaited-for Messiah prophesied about in the Old Testament, described by the man, the obscure prophet named John the Baptizer, and then of course proved who he was by dying on a cross, being buried, and raising on the third day. Many people were excited about their message. And so they asked Paul and Barnabas to come back to synagogue again and to share again about this man, Jesus. Imagine the excitement on the street corners as they talked about this new message. In their homes as they gathered around their tables for their meals. On the steps leading up to the synagogue, imagine the people gathered around asking, do you believe that this man, Jesus, that Paul spoke about? Do you believe that he really is the Messiah? Do you believe that he's come to save us? Were they living in the last days when God would fulfill his promises to all of Israel? These are the questions that the people, no doubt, would have been asking in those days. Well, word spread quickly. And the text says that almost the whole town assembled to hear the word of God. Paul and Barnabas probably continued preaching the gospel as they walked through the town among the people that week, as they often did and described in the book of Acts. So many of the people would have heard the message on the Sabbath and then probably again out during the week, out in the marketplace, in the shops, among Paul and Barnabas as they lived and served and worked among the people. And so the crowds began to gather and they began to develop a hopeful expectation to hear this revolutionary message from these two missionaries, Paul and Barnabas. And while there were many Jews there, Pisidian Antioch was composed primarily by Gentiles. 
So when, we're descri- when Luke describes here in this text, in the book of Acts, that almost the whole town came, you would have had a synagogue filled with not just Jews, but also Gentiles. Anybody that wanted to hear the message about Jesus. Well, this led the religious leaders, the, the Jews there, to be filled with jealousy. They were envious of Paul and Barnabas because of the crowds who had gathered to hear them preach the Gospel. They resented Paul and Barnabas. Now, it's important for us to recognize why they were filled with jealousy. The Jews were jealous of Paul and Barnabas because the the crowds had gathered and swelled to hear them preach the Gospel. The Antioch Jews resented the messengers because the people followed them. And they were led very soon to take action. In verse 45, Luke reports that they began to contradict what Paul was saying to them. One scholar writes about it. He says this, The Jews were filled with jealousy and began to speak abusively against the thing Paul was saying. Perhaps even blaspheming the gospel itself. The reason for their sudden change in receptivity was evident. Their jealousy was over the presence of all these Gentiles. It was one thing to proclaim the coming Messiah to the Jews. It was quite another to maintain that the Messiah God accepted, that through the Messiah God accepted the Gentiles as well. To them, this was a little short of blasphemy, and Paul's witness to them was over. And so these Religious leaders, the Jews that had faithfully attended synagogue, heard the message, and at first they were receptive. They were excited about what Paul and Barnabas had to say until Paul got onto the part of the gospel where he told them that Jesus came for everybody. That anybody who calls on the name of the Lord could be saved. This was a revolutionary message. Make no mistake about it. And so they began to blaspheme or insult Paul. They weren't only attacking Paul. They were attacking Jesus. They were attacking the gospel message. They were trying to stop it. They were telling the crowds that Paul's message about Jesus was false, which is blasphemy against Jesus and, of course, against God. So what we learn here in just this first verse is that not everybody will receive the gospel. How many of y'all have ever heard of Billy Graham? Some of you have, okay. Billy Graham, he's passed away, he's gone to be with the Lord. He has a tremendous autobiography that you should read sometime about his life and about how God used him, miraculous things that God did in his ministry. In his book, he writes about a time when they had a big, um, a, 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 a big revival and one of the cities and, you know, a big, um, you know, like a, a big gathering place somewhere where several, you know, tens of thousands of people would have, gra- would, have, would have gathered like a football stadium or something. And he said how at the end of the service, you know, he, he got finished with preaching. And, of course, if you've ever been to one of his revivals, at the end he, he gives an invitation. He invites people to come down and to respond to the gospel, to come to Jesus or to come and just have time at the altar with the Lord. And so he did that, and while he, while he extended that invitation, a group of people came down, and they had kind of an organized group. They came down before everybody else to take up the space in front of the altar in protest against the gospel message that Billy Graham was preaching. And so 
they intended to disrupt the message, to disrupt the invitation. And Billy Graham stopped, and he said, okay, we, we have an issue up front here. This was unplanned. That These people are here, and they're trying to stand in the way of the gospel, and so this is what we're going to do. We're just going to stop, and we're going to pray. And so an entire stadium of people prayed for that small group of people that had come up in rebellion. And they just kept praying and praying. And eventually the group tired and moved on. And then Billy Graham issued the invitations and, and thousands of people came forward and they got saved. But that group right there, that represents a group of people on this earth that are going to not accept the gospel message. Many, many people, if you commit your life to sharing the message, to telling people about Jesus, many people will not accept Jesus. This is what happens to Paul and Barnabas here. There's a group of people that love Jesus, they're receptive and they're being saved and it's amazing. And there's another group of people that are standing against the message, that will not accept the message of Jesus. Many people will reject your message when you share the gospel. And that's okay. The question is, why is it okay? Because we have to really identify our role in the mission, right? So God's got a mission for us, right? Do you guys believe that God has a mission for you? Do you believe that God has a mission for this church and, and for the universal Christian church all over the world? We all have the same mission. So let me tell you what your role is. And my, my point in doing this part of the message and application here is to release you from fear and send you out to boldly share the gospel. Okay, that's what this is going to help us do. Jesus died on the cross. While he was on that cross, before he died, he received God's wrath for your sin and for mine. His blood was poured out on that cross as an atonement, as a covering for our sin. He, he took on his behalf the penalty of your sin. He received the wrath of God on your behalf. He took your place on the cross. And then he died on that cross, and then he was buried in the ground under armed guard by one of the most powerful uh, armies in the world at that time. And then on the third day, he resurrected from death, conquering death and sin, and providing you with the opportunity for everlasting life if you would repent of your sin and trust in him as Lord and Savior. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus did for us, right? That's his role. That's what the Father sent Jesus to do, right? Okay, now, what's our role in God's mission? That, that was Jesus' role. He accomplished it. Right? He's got more to do later, but we're not going to talk about that necessarily today. Jesus gives us a role in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We are called by our King to go out into the world and to share the gospel. That's what it means to make disciples. To teach them about Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. To invite them to turn from sin and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. We are messengers of the king. We are not the king. We're messengers of the king. We are to go out on his behalf 
as his ambassadors and to tell them about what Jesus did and to invite them to join the movement, to turn from sin and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's our job. And then, of course, we baptize them once they come to faith. And then as part of our disciple-making process, we teach them to follow Jesus. Like the way we live our life, we model that for them, a biblical lifestyle, and then they walk along with us and we show them how to do that. So we make apprentices. That's what disciple-making is. So Jesus' role is to die and provide salvation. Our role is to go out and tell people about it and then to make disciples of all the nations by, by sharing the gospel and showing people how to follow Jesus. According to John 6, God draws people to Jesus. It says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Father's role is to draw people to Jesus. Your role, my role, is to tell people about Jesus. And God's role is to draw them, to bring them in, to, to cause them to receive the message. Don't forget about the Holy Spirit. He's got a role too. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin and regenerates the repentant sinner upon belief in Jesus as Lord and Savior. John 16, 8 says, When he comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. John 6, 63 talks about the Holy Spirit as well. The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. And then again, speaking about the Holy Spirit in Titus 3, 5, he says, He saved us. Not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. Through the washing of regeneration and the renewal by who? The Holy Spirit. So, Jesus died for our salvation. He secured it for us. The Father is the one that draws people to himself, to salvation. The Holy Spirit is the one that does all the work inside. The convicting of sin, the regeneration that happens when you're born again. So what's our role? To share the message. Is it our role to convince people and make them to be saved? No. We, we share a compelling message because we want people to be saved. But at the end of the day, we share the message and, and the Trinitarian God does the heavy lifting. He does the work. Not us. We tell people and the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit do the work. We tell people, and they do the work. We tell people. We share the message. We share the message. They do the work. Why don't we fulfill our role? Well, as I worked on this message and thought about the times when I miss an opportunity, I tried to figure out kind of what I thought and what I experienced in the church. What are like the top three reasons why we don't fulfill our role in the mission, right? Because we got a role, we all agreed on that. Why don't we fulfill our role? I think the number one what reason is fear of man. We're afraid they're going to say no and reject the message, right? Just in a moment of honesty, could we all agree on that? That's one of the reasons why I won't share the gospel. We're afraid that people will say no. We don't want to be rejected. But they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting the message. But they still need to hear the message. Because who among your neighbors and your friends and your co-workers that does not yet know Jesus, listen, they are going to go to hell. 
unless they turn from sin and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, and you've got the message to share with them so they can receive salvation from Christ. And, and you're the means that God desired for the message to be shared. He generally is not sending angels down to proclaim as a, as a gospel choir the message in their life, right? That's probably not going to happen. Because he doesn't need to do that. He's got you. Stop being afraid of man. I'm saying this to you, and I'm speaking this to my own heart today. We are not to fear man. Who are we to fear? God and God alone. Stop being afraid of man. Don't be afraid of being rejected. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting the message. And they might reject that message a dozen times. And you know what? Number 13 may be the time when they hear it for the very first time. When the Father draws them and they receive salvation. We don't fulfill our role also because we lack faith. I know that stings a little. These three are going to sting. But I think they sting because they're true. Because we lack faith. How often do we think about or feel the prompting of the Holy Spirit to go and tell someone about Jesus? And our answer is, that person's not going to receive Jesus. Y'all ever think that? You don't have to lift your hands. I won't make you do that today. But we do do that, right? Have you ever felt prompted to share the gospel and thought in your heart, he or she is there's not. Bill will not receive Jesus today. Wow, that's, a, that's, that's kind of a big deal to say that, isn't it? Is it our role to decide who does or doesn't receive Jesus? No, we're just messengers, right? We don't get to decide that. We don't know that. And let me tell you, there's been times when I said that and then felt really guilty and convicted by the Holy Spirit and then shared the gospel, and there were times when that person did receive Jesus. There were times they didn't. But whether they will or won't, that's not up to us. We're just supposed to be obedient and share. Don't fear man and boldly speak out in faith because every time you share the gospel is a time someone could repent and believe. Every single time. And third, we don't share the gospel, we don't fulfill our role because of worldly priorities. Because we make a list of priorities and you know what's at the end of that list? telling people about Jesus. When God's called us, in fact, to be, mes uh, to be messengers and missionaries on duty 24 hours a day, we should always be ready and willing and prepared to tell people about Jesus. We oftentimes don't because we don't have time, right? I don't have time to share Jesus with that person today. I've got these five things that are pressing that I need to do. Listen, when we feel the, the, the drawing of the Holy Spirit to have a conversation with somebody and we don't do it because of other priorities, those priorities are worldly. Because our number one most important thing that we're called to do in, as missionaries of the Lord is tell people about Jesus. So church, instead, instead of living fear-filled, faithless, world-centered lives, we need to walk through doors when God opens them for us to share the gospel. Let's talk about that for a minute. What does it look like to walk through open doors? Look at verse 46. So Paul and Barnabas boldly replied, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we are turning to the Gentiles. 
So Paul and Barnabas have a strong message and a warning for the group of Jews who are opposing them. They replied not quietly, not weakly or meekly. They replied boldly through the power of the Holy Spirit to the critics who Satan stirred up to squelch the gospel message. It was necessary for Paul to share the gospel with Jesus for the Jews first because that was God's plan. Because Jesus is the Messiah sent by God to the Jews first, and but also to the Gentiles. And so you'll see that Paul does this throughout the book of Acts. He goes to a town. First, he goes to the Jews in the synagogue, shares the gospel. Those who receive him, he celebrates, continues to share with them. Then he opens up his time and his eyes and his heart to the Gentiles to preach the gospel to them. You see, the Jews weren't the only ones that God desired to save through Jesus Paul and the other Christians anointed by God to lead the mission recognized that God desired to save people from every people, from every nation. That's why Peter said in Acts 2.21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Since many of the Jews living in Pisidian Antioch rejected the gospel about Jesus, Paul's now released to focus on the receptive group of people there, both the Jews and the Gentiles. So to do this, Paul quotes Isaiah 49.6, which says this, or quotes 49.6, and in verse 47, that's the quote, he says, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This was originally given by the prophet Isaiah to the people of Israel to compel them to be a light in the world because they were God's chosen, called out people. They were to, to follow and obey and serve Yahweh, and thus they would be a light to the people to the Gentiles of this God who saves them, this God who protects them. And now Paul describes to his brothers and sisters there that Jesus is the one who fulfilled that prophecy, that Jesus is the light. And that there's an opportunity now for all people to come to the light. And the light is, of course, Jesus. Paul's message about Jesus as Savior for all people was radical. We can't miss that. We can't neglect it. What he was telling them was radical. It was revolutionary. Just imagine the the different washing and bathing rules that each culture uh, culture practiced. The the eating laws that they they practiced. All these things, they, they left... They left sort of walls in between groups of people. I mean, think of the cultural differences we just have on this island, right? We got some differences here, right? The foods we eat, where we spend our free time, all that stuff. What happened here is the message of Jesus unified the people into one place. And now Paul is saying, y'all, y'all are welcome under Jesus. Jesus is for everybody. Everybody's welcome to repent and believe and be saved and be a part of the family of God. Now, some rejected the message. Some were not ready yet to hear the gospel. But not everybody rejected the message. Look at verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and honored the word of the Lord, and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. So the Gentiles are having this like big party, right? Imagine yourself as a Gentile who, who loved God, who wanted to be a part of God's family. 
During this time, you would have been an outsider looking in. You would have been, as someone who, who decided to follow Yahweh before Jesus came, you would have been identified as a proselyte. So you're sort of in the family of God, and God would honor that. God liked that. He loved that. But not really because you've got no Jewish lineage. So you're sort of an outsider looking in. And now this guy Paul comes. He says, listen, the Messiah has come. And he's brought salvation, not just for the Jews, but for all people. In fact, all are welcome into the family of God. And so the Gentiles hear this, and they're like, Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo! yeah, we're part of it now. So y'all should be happy about that too. If, if you're not a Jew, that's a big deal. right? If you're a Gentile, this is you. you. Verse 48, put your name where the word Gentiles is, and that's you. So they receive, they hear, they're parting. They're adopted in the family of God. They're reconciled with God. They're a part of the kingdom of God. They're going to go to heaven to be with God. God would use them for an amazing purpose. They are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. In fact, there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. You are simply, based on your faith in Jesus Christ, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. So I'm not surprised that they had an amazing celebration. I wasn't saved until I was 20. Any any of you ever saved, were any of you saved as an adult? So like not really raised in, in the church, evangelical church? Okay, so if you were saved as an adult, do you at times feel kind of like an outsider looking in? Socially, culturally, let me just tell you. I got a few friends over here that are, are nodding with me. So I can tell you, I I was saved at 20, and then at age 25, I've been a believer five years, I went to seminary. And when I went to seminary, sometimes the, the Bible story, the Bible text that we would study, it would have been like the first or second time I ever read that in my life. So the things that y'all who were saved young and were raised in church, and that's a very, very good thing, and we're so thankful for that, the things that you've known, you know, about like Jonah and Noah, you know, about creation that you were, you were indoctrinated with since you were very young, some of us didn't get that stuff till we were older. And so we're, we feel like kind of on the outside looking in. Um, I feel sometimes like I'm on the outside looking in when I go to church potlucks. It's kind of a unique thing, you know, to have potlucks with the people of the church. And um, every church I go to, it's always unique and interesting. The food's different. Um, that's different. And I also feel like an outsider sometimes when I go to pastors' meetings. You know, I meet pastors. Their daddy was a pastor. Their granddaddy was a pastor. Their, their grandma's uncle was a pastor. And they were raised in the church. And, and they talk about all the things they used to do and how they were raised going to church. And all that's awesome. And I talk about how I was saved when I was 20. And like knew two pastors my whole life. That's just what I thought about. And if you were saving it as an adult, you probably have some experiences of when you were someone on the outside looking in. And that's really how the Gentiles felt during this time. And that's why it was such a big deal when Paul came and told them, like, everybody can be a part of the kingdom of God. Another point of application for that is that it doesn't matter what you did you can be saved by Jesus. 
It doesn't matter what you did 10 years ago. It doesn't matter what you did last month, last week. It doesn't matter what you did 12 hours ago. You can turn from sin and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior today. You can be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven today. You can be forgiven and reconciled with God today. Your life can change today. The Lord calls us to a glorious mission. And one of our first steps is simple. Walk through an open door. That's all God's asking you to do. Paul talks about open doors. In Colossians 4.3, Paul encouraged the church to pray that God would open up doors for him in his ministry. It says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. By the way, he was in jail in chains awaiting execution, still praying for doors to open so he could share the gospel. Just throwing that out there. We should also pray and ask God to open doors for us. It literally is like this. Lord God, as I leave my house today and go out into this world that you created, would you open up a door of opportunity for me to tell someone about Jesus? Let me tell you something. If you pray that that prayer, you better be ready for a door to open. Because you know what? God wants to save people. God wants to use you to share the gospel. And so when you ask him to open doors of opportunity for you to have spiritual conversations, that's in his will. He wants that to happen, and he's going to open doors. So pray and just ask God to open those doors for you. But Paul didn't just ask for doors to open. Paul also had the courage to walk through the door, to seize opportunities to tell people about Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 16, 9 says this, because a wide door of effective ministry has opened for me, yet many oppose me. So he was at once walking through this door of opportunity to share the gospel, at the same time receiving opposition. In Acts 14, 27, it says, After they arrived and gathered the church together, they reported everything God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So we not only need to pray and ask God to open doors of opportunity for us, but we need to be prepared to actually walk through the door. How many of y'all opened the front door when you came in and then just stood there and looked at it? Anybody? No one did that today, right? Well, you didn't because you're in here. How many of you are going to go home today after church is over, open up the front door, look inside, walk away? Don't need to go in there today. No, you're going you're gonna to drive home, and you're going to want to go home, so you'll open the door and walk through it. So let us bind our will to the will of the Lord. Let's ask our Lord to open up doors of opportunity for us, and then let's have the faith and the boldness to just take a step through the door, just like Paul did. All right, finally, we need to find joy in our obedience. Look at verse 49. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jews incited the prominent God-fearing women and leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their district. But Paul and Barnabas shook the dust off their feet against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. So this almost doesn't make any sense. So let me just kind of describe this to you because it's crazy. Paul and Barnabas went to Antioch. 
They shared the gospel with the people. Many people received Jesus with joy, but among the people that were gathered, there was a group there that rejected the gospel message. That group was so powerful politically that they ran Paul and Barnabas out of town. So if that was you, if you were in Antioch and you were sharing the gospel and and some people got saved, but a, a bigger group, a more powerful group of people, they basically disrupted your message and ran you out of town, like under threat of arrest or death or whatever, um, <clears throat> how would you feel? I would be probably tripping over my bottom lip as I tried to get out of town, right? First of all, I'd probably be silent, right? Because my fear would keep me from continuing. And then I would be so discouraged, you know, like, why am I, why did I, why did I come here? Do y'all still stamp your feet when you're mad? Or just kids do that? No adults? Why did I listen to God to come to this town? We used so many resources to get here. I faithfully shared the gospel. They said no. Now everyone's mad at me. Now I've got to leave town stomping off. That's not at all what they did, is it? What's the text say? Man, they shared the gospel. The gospel was so effective. The Holy Spirit moved and people were saved. They were filled with joy and filled with the Holy Spirit. They're having a party on the way out of town as the group who hates them is sort of pushing them out. And they're like, praise God. God is good. People are being saved. Right? If you don't have the enemy against you, you're probably not doing anything for Jesus. And that's what they recognized very early in their ministry. They're sharing the gospel. Of course they're going to come up against conflict because the enemy, Satan, doesn't want people to hear the gospel. And so they're, they're walking out of town filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. They've left a church behind and a movement, by the way, in Antioch. So how do we apply that to ourselves? We have to find obedience or find joy in our obedience to God, right? The, there is joy, of course. There's joy in people being saved, right? That's pretty awesome. I mean, there's a party in heaven when people are saved. The angels rejoice, right? There's joy in that, but, but every conversation isn't necessarily going to lead to someone being saved. But we can also find joy in just being obedient to God, We should find joy in fulfilling our role in the mission. And what's our role? Share the gospel. We find joy in just sharing the message. I'm going to close with a story about an amazing missionary. His name is William Carey. He's known as the the father of modern missions. There he is right there. William Carey, um, called by God to India. This is a pretty amazing story. First of all, he was trying to get a a mission agency together in England, and he wanted to go to India. And so he's in a pastor meeting, and he tells them, he stands up and said, listen, I feel like we need to go to, uh, they called then, then they called it the heathen, which is politically inappropriate today, but basically, I want to be called to the, the people of the world who had not yet heard the gospel. And he stands up and says this, another pastor stands up, and he says, son, If God wants to save them, he doesn't need you to do it. And wow, that could have been discouraging. Carrie was a young pastor to have one of his elder pastors tell him that. But he he was left unswayed. So he put a group together, 
and he got some missionaries, he raised funds, and he went to India. He started sharing the gospel, and he faithfully shared the gospel. He faithfully interpreted the word into their Burmese language, and he was a faithful man. And you know, he worked hard. Uh, he, he had many, many, many challenges. And that man worked for seven years. Seven years he worked. And you know how many converts he had? One. Seven years he sacrificed his life, his health, his family. One convert. He had a, a point in that point of his ministry when he had to decide what God was calling him to do. Surely God could use him somewhere else, right? I mean, one convert, seven years. Repeated threats against his life. Difficulty around every turn. Malaria, disease. His own wife caught malaria, tried to kill him with a knife. And he came to understand obedience. And he writes in one of his, his books that God had called him to be a plotter. P-L-O-D-D-E-R. To plod. Plotting is like what you do when you're really tired and you got a long way to go and you don't have a whole lot of energy and you just kind of do this. It's like what you do when you're in the snow up north or maybe in a big thing of mud or muck. And you just plod along. That's what God called him to do. And that plotter stayed in India for 41 years without a single break, without a single furlough. 41 years. And he only made 700 converts in 41 years. But God called him to go to India not only to convert those personally, but he created and tra uh, translated the Bible into their language that's still used today among their people. He also inspired missionaries to leave their home countries and go all around the world. He's noted for saying this, expect great things, attempt great things. He gave his life for God's mission. And I don't think he ever saw the fruit of what God called him to do. And now looking back, we see the exponential fruit of his, his ministry. We've got to find our joy in being obedient to the Lord. Not everyone will receive Jesus, but that's not our job. Our job is to tell them about Jesus. To have the courage and the faith and the boldness to walk through open doors and to find joy in our obedience. I don't know what God is saying to you right now. I don't know what the Holy Spirit is leading you to do, but we're going to have a time of invitation, a time for you to respond. If you've not been here before in a church, in a minute everybody's going to stand up. We're going to sing a song. This front here, these steps are going to be open for you if you want to come up to pray. If you have a decision to make today, if you want to receive Jesus as Lord, Follow through with baptism. Join the church. If you have a decision, come forward and talk to me about that. But there's only one thing that I'm going to ask you to do today. The Lord has created for us as a church an open door. There's a door open right now. We talked about having the courage and the faith to walk through an open door. There is, there is a door open now. In, in seven days from now, on the 31st, on Halloween, people are going to leave their houses and they're going to dress up in all kinds of costumes, and they're going to knock on doors, and they're going to try and fill up big 
pillowcases with candy, right? That, is that going to happen? Yes, okay. That's an open door for this church to reach our community with the gospel. Everyone, most people with kids in the city are going to leave their houses and they're going to be out on the streets going up to strangers for candy. Okay, you catch that? It really only happens once a year. Now, we're going to give them a place to go and we're going to give them candy, but we're also going to give them the gospel. It's an open door for evangelism. It's an open door for us to share and tell people about Jesus. It's an opportunity. So, I'm asking you to do one thing. On your way out, everyone's going to get one of these. It's a flyer about what we're going to do next Sunday from 5 to 7. We need people to serve as well. We need volunteers. But this week, the most important thing you can do to help is just take one of these things and invite somebody to come to the fall festival. I know it seems like really silly, right? But you have friends and family, and they're going to dress up in costumes and go out to get candy. Bring them here, and they will get the gospel. They're going to hear it sung. They're going to hear it spoken. It's an open door for you to walk through, fulfill your mission, God's mission. I want to invite everybody to stand now, if you would, please. Heavenly Father, I pray over this time of invitation. I ask, Heavenly Father, that you would give boldness and faith to this congregation. For the person who's standing right now, who's being called by you to come forward, I pray that you help them to take that step of obedience. And for those at their seats, I pray that you would give all of us compassion and love, boldness and faith, to go out and fulfill our role and your desire to save the lost. We love you and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.